Matthew 27, verses 1 through 31. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. When, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into this treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd one any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that he had delivered him up, that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See, it, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed on in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put it on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So that's where we're going to stop for tonight. Now, as you can already see, there's a lot here. But there's actually more going on here than is recorded by Matthew. We're going to show you that actually some more happens that Matthew doesn't record, but John does. But let's just go back to chapter 27, verse 1. As it turns morning, we see here when the morning came, the Jewish council of elders and the religious leaders make their official verdict that Jesus should be put to death. Now, they had already long before, as we already saw last week, decided that they wanted him dead. But now they're making it official and public. But before we go on to what happens next with him going before Pilate, Matthew just starts immediately breaks away from that and tells what happens with Judas. And actually, Matthew's the only one that tells us about what happens with Judas, except Luke does, but not in his Gospel of Luke. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, actually gives us a little insight as to what happened to Judas as well. So remember what we just read in. We're going to take a look at it again. But go with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to take a look at what happened to Judas. 
Acts chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 26. Acts chapter 1, verse 15 says, Peter speaking there in the upper room after the resurrection of Jesus and everything, and he's, he's, a, he's just ascended to the Father. And, re, and Acts 1, verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that field was called in their own language, Ekeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place of office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know, who the, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then, as you know, they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. Now, as we put Matthew together in what Luke adds now in, in recording what Peter said, we find out that Judas, once he realized he had betrayed innocent blood, he changed his mind. And he went back to the chief priest and he said, I've betrayed an innocent man. And he tried to give him the money back. And they said, no, you deal with that, whatever you want. Well, he, he just threw the money into the temple and he went off and he hung himself. Now we see from Luke, not only did he hang himself, at some point, either the tree branch broke or the rope broke. And after he had laid there, hung there dead for a while, it, he, his body fell and it burst open when it hit the ground. Now, there's a couple of things I'm going to take some time to deal with about Judas. The first one is here in Matthew, Matthew says that this was a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. Take a look at what it says um, in verse 6. Chief priest taking the pieces of silver said it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, this is actually quoting from Zechariah. Let me take you to Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 11. You'll see very clearly that the, this prophecy is in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. In Zechariah chapter 11, look at verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you to give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter, which is literally what Judas does. But we got to deal with this problem now. Matthew says that that would be in Jeremiah, but we see, clearly see it's in Zechariah, not Jeremiah. Now, some might say, ah, the Bible, we've got a problem here. There's a, there's a flaw in it. Remember, God's word 
is true and sure, and what he said will happen, will happen. We've been dealing with that. Every word of this book is God-breathed. Let me just say to you, I deal with too many people around the country who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, who only accept parts of the Bible and other parts they don't. You folks, you either accept all of it or you got to chuck it. You, you can't be the one who determines, well, I like this part and agree with it, but I don't like this part, so I don't agree with it. You don't get to be the judge of it. It's either the Word of God or it's not. I heard this guy just recently make a quote unquote prophecy and he made a prophecy and he said this. I got a word from the Lord. This was a word from the Lord. It's just like I, got, I read the scriptures. God so clearly spoke to me. Let me tell you what's going to happen. But if I'm wrong. <laughs> there's no you can't have it both ways. Either this is the word of God or it's not. So how do we deal with this? Well, actually, the answer is very clear and I'll show you from the scriptures. The answer, the what we know is the Old Testament or what the Jews call, Jewish people called their Bible, was broken up into three parts. It was broken up into the first five books of the Bible, which is the law, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. Sometimes it's called Book of, Book of Moses, but it's the law. It was also broken down into the middle, another section called the writings or the Psalms. And then there were the prophets. So in their Old Testament, there wasn't, theirs wasn't the same order that ours is. They would have the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so... The prophets, though, the first book in the book of all their prophets was Jeremiah. And so when Matthew says was written in Jeremiah, he's simply saying it was in the section of their Bible called the prophets. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he mentioned it by the first book. That's why a lot of times Jesus said, have you not read Moses? Well, he's talking about one of the first five books of the Bible, which was referred to by Moses. But let me let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Luke 24. Luke 24 will show you how. Even Jesus understood that they saw the Old Testament as broken into three parts. In Luke 24, look at verse 44. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's just appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus. He's now in the upper room with the disciples that first night that he rose from the dead. And in verse 44, he said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be Fulfilled. Do you see how the Bible's broken up into three parts? The law, the prophets and the Psalms, or the law, the writings and the, and the Psalms. It, the, the law was written, sorry, the prophets were, were all headed up by Jeremiah. So when Matthew says it was written in Jeremiah, he's just referring to the prophets. All right. We now know that it was in Zechariah. Theirs were all just clumped together. All right. So that's the easy part. Actually, this part's the second thing about Judas is easy as well in the sense that it's very provable. It's just hard because a lot of us don't want to hear it. I've heard too many people over the years say, well, look, Judas changed his mind. Therefore, Judas might be in heaven. And I've heard too many people say that because of the grace of God and Judas was really sorry for what he did and he threw the money, Judas is in heaven. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that Judas is not in heaven. And there's some things for us to learn, not just to gather information about Judas and have a who's right or wrong. But you, I want you to listen closely because there might be some people that are here tonight or maybe someone that's listening online right now as they listen in through the website that need to hear what the scripture has to say about this. Judas does change his mind about taking the money. But all the scriptures that surround Judas's story clearly state that he went to hell. Let's go back to Acts chapter one. I read long in that episode with Peter and the disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 for a reason. Look again at verses 24 and 25. In Acts chapter 1, look at verses 24 and 25. Peter says this, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two that you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned 
uh, turned aside to go to his own place. Does it sound like he's in heaven? No. But again, don't build your doctrine on one scripture. I've told you that for years. Build your doctrine on more than one scripture. Go to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, look at verses 70 and 71. John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus says, I chose you, but one of you is a devil. Go to John 17. Actually, before you go to John 17, back up to John chapter 6, verse 35 real quick. Look at verse 35 and following. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and yet don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Did you catch that? For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus has said, the one the Father, ones the Father gives to me, I'll never lose. If you're given to God and you're sealed by the Spirit, you're, you're guaranteed eternity. But go to John 17. Listen to what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 12. Jesus is praying in the garden before he goes to the cross, and he says, while I was with them, he's praying to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So here we've already seen that Jesus, uh, Luke Records that Peter said he went to his own place. Jesus said he was a devil and he lost none except the one that was never one. And that's Judas. But it gets even more clear. Go to John 13. In John 13, look at verses 8 through 11. John 13, verse 8. Jesus is in, there in the upper room. They're having the Lord's Supper. Jesus is washing their feet. In verse 8. Peter said to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So once again, we see that Judas isn't clean. But here's the clincher. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. In Matthew 26, verse 20, it says, When it was evening, he reclined, Jesus reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. When you put a whole of scripture together, is Judas in heaven? No, he's not. But now we have to deal with something. Man, it sure looks like he was repentant, though, doesn't it? I mean, he was changed his mind. He, he, he regretted what he had done. He threw the money back into the temple. Being sorry is not repentance. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at one verse, verse 10. Paul's writing to a church that he's had to be pretty hard, harsh on them because of some problems there. And he, he wrote a letter that kind of hurt him a little bit. And he's been telling them, look, I'm really sorry that it hurt you, but I'm not sorry that it hurt you because it produced the proper response. 
And look at what he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces repent, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me read it to you again. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces repentance. Being sorry for what you've done is not repentance. Turning the other way and running to Jesus is repentance. You see, if Judas really was repentant, he would have not just said, I shouldn't take this money. He would have run to Jesus and said, I believe I was wrong. I understand now. Would you please forgive me? Would you please wash me clean? But all he did in his just agony over what he had done in his situation, he went and hung himself. But doesn't it look like he couldn't help himself? Well, he had a choice. The Bible is very, very clear. He asked him, is it I? And well, at the same time, he at this point, if you remember from our study, he had already gone and met with the Pharisees. He's already got the 30 pieces of silver in his pocket while he says, is it I? He's not asking to find out for himself. He's asking to find out if Jesus knows. Do you see what I'm saying? He's already made the deal. One of you is going to betray me. He's already made the deal with the Pharisees in private, got the 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. So he he wasn't surprised. He made a choice. And that's why Jesus said, you know, back in Matthew 18, he said, sin's going to come into the world. It's going to happen. But woe to him through whom it does. But go to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me, let me just show you something here. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 through 17. I want to show you a couple of harsh passages. And I want you to hear through the scriptures and by the spirit of God what the scripture says here. Because these are very harsh passages, but we need to hear them. In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verses 15 through 17. Hebrews 12, verse 15. The Hebrew writer says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau sought the blessing... But at that point, he had already lost it. Now, listen closely. We've already shown you, and I want you to hear. The, Jesus himself said, everyone that the Father gives me, I will never cast out. I'll lose none that the Father gives me. All through the scripture, the Bible is very clear that if God has saved you and forgiven your sins and put his spirit in you, you're sealed as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Clearly say that if you've been sealed by God's spirit, you are eternally secure. Now, the big issue is not that you prayed a prayer, not that you were baptized, not that you joined a church. The, the question is, have you been sealed by the spirit of God? In John chapter 2, we don't have time to turn there, verses 24 and following, it says, Upon seeing the miracles that Jesus did at the feast, many believed in his name. The next verse says, though, but Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he didn't need man to testify about another man. In other words, he knew their hearts. Even though they said they believed, they really didn't. And there's a difference between those who say they believe and those who really do. Let's be honest. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, Judas knew he was the guy. But everybody else was clueless. And it's not our job to figure out who's saved and who's not. But the Spirit of God will reveal to you whether or not you're really His. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says this, Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? And that's one of the things. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're His children. 
He will confirm our salvation. And if he has given you his spirit, you are not going to ever be cast out. He will not lose any that the Father's given him. But there are those who have received a knowledge of the truth, who have had their eyes open to who God is. They've tasted of the heavenly gift in the sense the spirit of God's opened their eyes. They know that that is the only way to be saved. And they then walk away. The Bible says there comes a point for those people there. God shuts the door and you cry all you want. You feel bad as you want. If God has said your opportunity to be saved is over, you're going to be one of the most miserable people on the earth. Let me ask you a question. When God brought judgment on the earth and saved Noah and his family in the, during the flood, who shut the door of the ark? God shut the door of the ark. Folks, we'll go to Hebrews chapter 10. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Again, as you're turning to Hebrews 10, we're going to look at verses 26 through 31. Remember that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 clearly states that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Now our message is be reconciled to God, Paul said. In other words, don't miss this. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the entire world. Some people say Jesus only died for those who are going to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. First John chapter two, verse two says this, that he died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. Do, is the whole world going to be going to heaven? The Bible is very clear that no. Wide's the path that goes to destruction. Many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. So the Bible's very clear that even though Jesus paid for the sins of the world and on God's side of the ledger, man has been forgiven. Now you have to receive that forgiveness. It's been purchased already by God. It's been purchased by the blood of Christ. But if God shows you that I paid for your sins by my son and you know this and you reject it, boy, you're in for it. Listen to what Hebrews 10 verse 26 through 31 says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, this go on sinning deliberately is not committing sins. It's rejecting what God's revealed to us. We've received the knowledge of the truth. If we do this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wait a minute. Didn't Peter tell everybody he didn't know? We studied that last week. Didn't he say, I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. I don't know the guy. How come Peter's in heaven and Judas isn't? Peter had already been sealed. Peter was already made clean. Why? Because God knew that his faith was real. Oh, there was a period where he looked like Simon for a little while. And I don't know about you. Jim Johnson does still, too. Thank God I've been called Peter, but I sometimes look like Simon. But once he says, you're forgiven, my spirit's going to seal you. Once you're his, you're his. Judas never, ever was. Go to 1 John chapter 2 real quick. Go to 1 John, back by the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 19. First John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Did you catch that? There's going to be those among us who really aren't of us. It's not our job to figure out who's saved in this room and who's not. But I'll tell you this much. The Spirit of God will show you where you stand. And if you know the truth and you decide to reject it and you hope in anything else, there comes a point where God says, I won't give you an opportunity to be saved anymore. And folks, I don't know when that is. So I'm going to preach to everybody like you're the thief on the cross and you got till your last breath an opportunity to be saved. It's not up to me to determine that. And I'm going to preach to everybody. I'm never going to say, well, I think that person's passed their opportunity and I'm not going to share the gospel with them. That's not our call. But we have to be faithful to Scripture. There comes a point where you can feel as sorry as you want. You won't go to repentance if God doesn't open that door for you anymore. And so if you know and you hear, again, I'm hopefully speaking to nobody in this room, but I may be speaking to somebody that's tuned in for some reason and gone to the website. If you know the truth and God has opened your eyes to who Jesus is, don't reject it. Don't turn your back. I heard a cool story years ago about this one evangelist. It happened many, many years ago, almost 50 years ago. He actually wasn't doing full-time evangelism yet. He was still working at a factory. And he had just become a believer, and he had shared his faith with a whole lot of people at that factory. And he had a supervisor over him who was a lady, and she was a worldly lady, and she was crass, and she would always make these sexual jokes to him and made him really uncomfortable. And he kept sharing the gospel with her, and she kept mocking him and making fun of him because he was younger than her. And one day he invited her to come and hear an evangelist that was coming into that town. And she agreed to go. But she goes, I don't have a car. And he says, well, I got a scooter. I'll come pick you up at your house and I'll bring you to the evangelist's uh, rally. So he shows up that night to pick her up at her apartment and she's drunk. And he's really frustrated and he puts her on the back of the bike and he witnesses to her all the way there. He prays the whole time of the preacher's preaching that she'll get saved. She sits there the whole time laughing, making fun. And then on the ride home, as they get back on his scooter, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, don't say a word to her about me. Don't even mention me to her on the way home. You talk about the weather, you talk about work, you talk about everything except me. Don't you dare say another thing to me, uh, to her about me. And so he does. He drops her off. He shows up at work the next morning and she comes running up to him and it's obvious she's saved. I mean, she is a different person. She had given her life to Christ. And he said, what in the world happened? You were drunk. You made fun of me. You made fun of the evangelist the whole time. And now all of a sudden you're saved. What happened? She said, well, I was sure that you were going to preach to me since you had me on the scooter and you had no, no I had nowhere to go. You were going to preach to me some more while I got on the scooter. But you never said a word to me about God or about Jesus. And it scared me because that evangelist last night said that there comes a point where God shuts the door. And if he stops drawing you, you can't be saved. And I thought to myself, oh, no, he knows that it's too late for me. And I fell on my knees at my bed and said, oh, God, please, may it may not be too late. And she got saved. It's up to God. He determines. But folks, please hear me. You can't play with this and say, well, I'll just wait until I get on my deathbed and ask God to forgive me. You're not guaranteed that opportunity. You're not guaranteed that opportunity. Let's go back to Matthew. Jesus now must be brought before Pilate because the Jews have no authority to put anyone to death since Rome is ultimately in control of their region. 
Now, the Roman government must approve of his execution. And if they do, their method of execution is crucifixion, by the way, which is very interesting, just like the prophecy said it would be. Let me just back up for a little bit for you here. If you do a study of crucifixion, it had been going on for many years. The Syrians did it. The Babylonians did it. But the, when the Romans took over crucifixion, they mastered it. And not only did they master it, they became so good at it and so vile at it, it was a really good deterrent to crime. Because if you were going to be put to death, the only method was, unless you chose as a Roman citizen, you did have a choice as a Roman citizen. It was a crucifixion or beheading. But only a Roman citizen had the right to choose how they were going to be executed. But if you didn't have a choice, it was crucifixion. And what they did was they actually would beat you as Jesus, as you're going to see later on next in our next week's study. We'll get into more detail. He was scourged and they would scourge you with a whip and they would do it 39 lashes to the point that your flesh would just rip off the back. You would have pretty much no flesh from the back of your neck to the middle of your thighs. And then they would then make you carry your cross to wherever it was they were going to have you hung. And, oh, it was going to be in a public place where everybody would just walk right by and see you. But they wouldn't just do that. They would nail you in your hands and your feet. they put one foot over on top of the other and drive a stake through the feet. And the reason they did that was you didn't die because of the being nailed to the cross. You died because of asphyxiation and suffocation. Because hanging there like that, you can't get a breath. The weight of your body on your diaphragm is such that you can't get a breath. And the only way you can is to push off with your legs to try to push up and get a breath. And that is excruciating. If for some reason you're still able to get a breath and you're not dying as fast as they want you to, which, by the way, they expect it to take hours. They'll come and take a sledgehammer and break your legs. And interestingly enough, if the Jews had been allowed to put Jesus to death, how would have they put him to death? According to the scriptures, stoning. Their law said that their method of execution, capital punishment, was stoning. Yet, interestingly enough, they, because Rome's in charge at this time, don't have the authority. They've been given freedom by Rome to actually have their laws and their worship services and all that stuff. They just don't have authority to put anybody to death. And so here they've decided that Jesus must die, but they can't put him to death they would have stoned him otherwise, but they can't because Rome's actually in charge. And because Rome's in charge, Rome has to approve his execution. And if Rome approves his execution, the method of execution, because he's not a Roman citizen, is crucifixion. Go to Psalm 22. We're going to be coming back to Psalm 22 a lot as we go through the crucifixion itself. But look at Psalm 22 and look what was written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. Before Rome was even in charge. Psalm 22. I'm going to read to you just a few verses in 22. We're going to jump around a little bit. But listen to what it says in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jump down to verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Isn't that interesting? The prophecy said that this individual was going to be pierced and they were going to cast lots for his clothing and he was going to thirst and he was going to have all his bones hang, come out of joint as he hung on the cross. You'll see that later on when we get to the crucifixion. There's actually another prophecy that says that not one of his bones will be broken and you'll see that happened as well. But not only do the prophecies predict the piercing and the bruising and the crushing. Go to Isaiah 53. It also talked about him being wounded by stripes. Isaiah 53. Look at verses 1 through 7. Again, written hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, some translations say stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Does that sound familiar what we've just been reading? Again, the prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus was crucified. It clearly says that there's going to be an individual, whoever this he is at that time that it was written, this he is going to go through this. And now we see very clearly that it was pointing to Jesus. Actually, all of the prophecies about this coming one were fulfilled in his first coming by Jesus. Now there's another bunch more prophecies about his second coming, but we'll get to that when we do our study of Daniel. But Matthew's account of Jesus before Pilate leaves off something that only Luke records. Go with me to Luke 23. I'm going to read this to you. We're going to look at Luke 23, verses 1 through 16. But actually, they bring him before Pilate. Pilate tries in many ways to get out of being responsible for Jesus' death, for he can find no fault in him and definitely nothing deserving of death. So as you're about to see, Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee and since Herod was in charge of Galilee, and Herod would happen to be in Jerusalem at the time, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Matthew doesn't record this, but Luke does. Look at Luke 23, starting in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him, Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. By the way, let me ask you a quick question. Do you remember back when they said, Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? What did Jesus say? Yeah, whose face is on it? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Here they're accusing him of saying, you don't give to Caesar. Again, the lying that's going on. And they're saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When he, Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. 
So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Isn't that interesting? He found him not guilty, but he's going to punish him anyway. Why do you think Pilate had Jesus scourged and then handed over? So you could say he did something. To appease. Say he did something, partially. Appease. Definitely you're going to see part of that come up later in our study. Fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy. Now, I'm going to deal with something because we're going to see this as we go into this. And it's going to become more clear to you, hopefully, by the end of the study. But did, did Pilate have a choice? I mean, because, I mean, the prophecy was going to be fulfilled. Did Pilate have a choice? Yes. Pilate had a choice. Don't miss this, folks. Jesus himself said, sin is going to come into the world. But woe to him through whom it comes. The prophecies are going to be fulfilled, but don't say, well, Pilate didn't have a choice then because the scripture had to be fulfilled. Did the scripture say literally Pilate would be the one who did it? No, he just said all these things would happen. And it hit me. And you're going to see Pilate do everything in his power to get out of it when he ends up making the wrong choice. But it hit me as I was studying on this. What if Pilate said, I ain't doing it? It would have still literally happened. And on that time that God had set, because you'll see as we get into the crucifixion and everything, everything's happening right to the second that God's orchestrated according to the prophecies. But Herod just happens to be in town too, doesn't he? He's got the authority to take over just like that. If Pilate said, I ain't doing it, I could see Herod. By the way, if you know anything about Herod, he, he hadn't had any trouble killing anybody. It was all going to happen. But don't think for a second that the prophecy said it had to happen this way. Therefore, Pilate didn't have a choice. All it said was one of uh, Jesus' close confidants and close friends was going to betray him. One who dipped his hand in the bread. Didn't say Judas. Judas was the one that fulfilled it. And Judas is suffering for the rest of his life because of it. Be better if he hadn't been born. I've said this for years, folks. Just because God already knows what choice you're going to make doesn't mean you don't have a choice. God already knows what choice you're going to make. You don't. So make the right choice. You have the ability to choose. Don't ever fall into that fatalistic attitude that says, well, if God already knows what tie I'm going to put on tomorrow, I don't really have a choice. No, yes, you do. You have a choice. Just because God knows doesn't take away your responsibility. <clears throat> so Herod wanted to see Jesus, but mainly as a magician or a sideshow act, entertainment, curiosity. By the way, do you ever notice that uh, a lot of people see Jesus that way. There are a lot of people that talk about Jesus. They, they believe in Jesus. But they really see him more as a powerful person or someone that maybe helped me out or he maybe do something for me, but I'm still going to be in charge of my life. But since Jesus was silent, Herod had him mocked and dressed in king's clothing and he sent him back to Pilate. And then we see from Luke's account something interesting. That because of this, Pilate and Herod, who weren't friends, probably political enemies, become friends now because of Jesus. Someone said the same thing last night. An enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
Actually, go back with me to Matthew chapter um, 16. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now, before I uh, read to you Matthew 16, 1 through 4, let me ask you a Bible question that hopefully you guys know. Do the Pharisees and the Sadducees like each other? No, they're enemies. They have to work together because of the, the way that their political system is set up there in, in Jerusalem and in, 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 in Israel. Uh, but the Sadducees and the Pharisees are total enemies when it comes to politics and theology. They don't like each other. I could take you to Matthew 22. I'm not going to do that. But I could show you in Matthew 22 how the Pharisees try to trip Jesus up. But then they're not able to. So the Sadducees now try to trip Jesus up because that means in tripping up Jesus, they can also one up the Pharisees. And then when they find out they can't do it, the Pharisees try again. They don't like each other. But look at Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather and for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. They're together. They're coming together and they both ask the same question of Jesus. Why? Because even though they don't like each other and their hatred of Jesus... Makes them friends. Go to Revelation chapter 16. As you're turning to Revelation 16, I'm going to ask you another question. It deals with where we are today in the world. Do all the nations of the earth get along right now? Not even close, right? Go to Revelation 16. Listen to verses 12 through 14. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Keep that in mind. Jump back to Zechariah chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. Zechariah 12, verses 1 through 3. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. There's a day coming, folks, in which even though the world doesn't like each other, they're all going to unite together to fight against Jesus and to fight against Israel. I thank God for the fact that we've had a president that's been pro-Israel, because God's word clearly says, whoever blesses Israel will be blessed, whoever curses Israel will be cursed. But if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, we have to let the scriptures speak. Remember, everything God says is true. Everything he says is sure. And everything God says is going to happen is going to happen, no matter how strongly you may feel otherwise. At some point, if America still exists, we will be, along with all the other nations, gathering against Israel. I believe we personally, as Christians, will be gone before that happens, I hope. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. All the world which does not get along is going to unite against Jesus. Any idea why Pharisees and Sadducees who really don't like each other are willing to partner together to fight Jesus? 
Any idea why nations that really don't like each other are willing to partner together to fight against Jesus? Power. No. There's a deeper issue. They're stronger. They may think they're stronger that way, but there's a deeper issue. Goes, don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it talks about how we're to put on the full armor of God. You know why? Because our battle is not really against flesh and blood, but it begins powers and rulers and authorities in the evil places, folks. Who's really behind all this? Satan. Satan. Satan, the one that's going to be behind it. And he's going to be given authority. Remember, he's going to be at the midpoint of the tribulation. We're going to cover a lot of this when we do our Daniel study. He's going to be thrown down to the earth and he's going to be allowed and he's going to work hard and he's going to get everybody together to fight against Jesus. The real reason everybody's going to get along is Satan is the one behind it all. Go back to Matthew 27, though, and look at verse 20. Matthew 27, verse 20. We'll start in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Now this was a very common thing, happened every year at the feast. The Romans, to be appeasing and, and showing that they were nice to the Jews, would, during their feast time, release one of their prisoners. There was a guy that Pilate chose who was, as you're going to see later tonight if we run, don't run out of time, uh, had caused an insurrection. He was a murderer. He was a thief. In other words, the last guy you want back on the streets. Pilate picks him. He also picks him for another reason. Uh, he was accused, and it, was, it happened, of starting an insurrection. What are the Jews accusing Jesus of doing? Isn't that interesting? They say, hey, this guy's trying to start an insurrection. Jesus says, I mean, Pilate says, well, why don't I release to you a guy, another guy that did start an insurrection? Do you really want him back? And they choose Barabbas. But, but who incites the crowd to ask for Barabbas and ask for Jesus to be crucified, according to Matthew 27, 20? Chief priests and the elders. Let's, don't, miss, don't miss this, folks. We're going somewhere with something that's happening in our day. Those crowd of people, you remember, this is all happening early in the morning. They probably don't even know what's been going on. The arrest happens in the dark. Remember, Jesus even himself said, why do you do it now? I was in the temple all the time while the people are around. Now you come to me at night with, rob with clubs and swords like a robber. Uh, they had their trial in the middle of the night, which was illegal. And they wait till morning to make their official verdict. It's very early in the morning and they go to Pilate's house. But a crowd now has started to gather because it's daybreak and people are coming out of their houses. They're not even really knowing what's going on. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the chief priests and the elders all go through the crowd, working them up, saying, ask for Barabbas. Ask for Jesus to be crucified. I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to hear me carefully. Beware of getting sucked into the latest outrage on social media. Satan uses this tool to work up the masses, folks. Be very cautious and wary about anything that's trending. Be wary of anything that's trending. Whenever you take anything in, check it against the scriptures. Check it against the scriptures. Don't have a visceral reaction. You've heard me say over and over, our usual visceral reaction is probably wrong. But beware. 
Years ago, when I became pastor of a church, this church at that time, uh, they had felt like they didn't really have a say very much in what was going on. And they're going through a lot of problems. And I became the new pastor. And they had what they called a family forum every one Wednesday night a month. And on, instead of having prayer service, they would all meet in the fellowship hall. And it was family forum. And anybody that had any concerns or anything had the freedom to share it. When I came as the new pastor, I said, that stops today. That's how Jesus got crucified. Because, you know, you get your family form, you know, everybody comes in there and no one really know what we're going to talk about. And all of a sudden someone's going to say, I got a real problem with the Coke machine in the kitchen because I understand we have a Coke machine and they're charging so much money to raise money for the kids, for the youth department or whatever. And then all of a sudden someone says, well, how much are we charging? Well, we're charging this. Why don't we charge more if we're going to make this? Well, why are we charging so much? I didn't even know we had a Coke machine. Next thing you know, everybody's all upset about a Coke machine they didn't even know anything about. And so I came as pastor and I said, look, I want you to always feel like you can speak and you can share, but we're not going to just have it opened. That's how Jesus got crucified. Somebody got the crowd all worked about something they didn't even know anything about. Beware of social media, folks. Everybody in the, everybody on the globe now has the ability to be a journalist. And we've even lost real journalism. Hey, prophecy said that this stuff was going to happen. Be wise as serpents. But harmless as dove. Beware of anything that's trending. Pilate's getting pressure from all sides. His own conscience, first of all. I mean, he realizes, he knows this is an innocent man. The Jewish religious leaders are pressuring him. The crowd that is forming is now pressuring him. Herod was no help. He had handed him over to Herod in hopes that he would help him out. Herod doesn't help him, so Herod's added pressure. Jesus is no help because Jesus isn't saying anything. And now his wife is sending him notes not to have anything to do with this righteous man because of a dream she had. And he knows now if I make the wrong choice, I'm going to go home and have to deal with her. He's got pressure from all sides. But Pilate's also getting lots of opportunity to do the right thing. But he doesn't. Why? You don't have to answer it. I'm going to show you from Scripture. From Scripture, the Bible tells us why Pilate makes the wrong choice. Go to Luke chapter 23. Verses 18 through 25. Go to Luke 23, 18 through 25. We're going to put together from three different passages of Scripture why Pilate made the wrong choice. And then I'm going to share with you some other things about Pilate you may not know, but I know from history. Luke 23, verses 18 through 25. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Listen, and their voices prevailed. So the Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So here we see from here in Luke, their voices prevailed. Go to John chapter 18. Let's start in verse 19. 
Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and he arrayed him in a purple robe and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. That's important. Keep that in your mind. They said, if you release Jesus, you're not a friend of Caesar. Let me give you one more. Go to Matthew 27. Look at verses 24 and tw through 26. So Jim, that was John 19. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I said 18 earlier. No, we started in John 19. Yeah, I said, I had said I, in my notes, it, I started in verse 18, but I skipped down to the end. So we started in verse 19. You're right. I'm sorry. Chapter yeah, chapter 19. Thank you. Did I really say 18 verse 19? Yeah. I apologize, folks. Sometimes my brain gets going so fast I can't even keep up with it. It was, really 19. It was 19 starting in verse 1. That's what I meant. That was 19 verse 1 through verse 16. All right. Thank you. I apologize. Thanks for clarifying that, Chris. Yeah. Again, in my notes, we were going to start in chapter 18 verse 28. But I time-wise realized we can't. We got to get going. So I jump. We are now in Matthew 27, I hope. Matthew 27, verses 24 through 26. Look at Matthew 27, 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We see from Luke's account, their voices prevailed. What they said was, you're not a friend of Caesar if you release this guy. And he realized that a riot was beginning. Those three things together are important. Now, for years, I thought Pilate was wishy-washy. I mean, he looks kind of weak, doesn't he? I, I, I wash my hands. I don't know. I'm afraid. My wife says, don't have anything to do with it. Ah, and he just looked like a wishy-washy guy. But actually, if you do a little historical study, because there's a lot of Roman history you could study, you'll find out Pilate wasn't a wishy-washy leader. He actually was a harsh leader, and he was a jerk. The previous leaders who were over Jerusalem and over Israel, who had been in, in, in there, who were from Rome, whenever they would march in their armies and whatever, they had their flagpoles and their banners, and they had their images on top, like eagles or whatever. And the Jews would say, well, our law says that God tells us not to have any graven images. And that bothers us to have graven images that you parade through the streets. And the previous leaders would say, you know what, for your sake, we will take those off. When Pilate became in charge, he says, I don't care. I don't like you guys. I don't care much for you. I don't even care what you think. And so he had them all put back on. He was such a harsh leader over Israel that the Jews went to Caesar and said, we got a problem. This guy is so mean. He's not treating us good. Caesar and the powers that be in Rome contacted Pilate and said, if you can't handle that little area that we've given you, you're going to lose your power. 
I mean, you know, the Romans are always trying to work their way up the ladder. That's why Herod and Pilate didn't like each other. And he was told by Caesar, if you can't control those people, you're out of a job. You can do the study of Roman history. You'll find that to be true. So what happens now? A riot is starting to form. And they said, we'll go to Caesar again. If you release Jesus, you're not a friend of Caesar. And we've already talked with him. And we'll talk with him again. And when he realized this was going on and that he was going to lose his position if he didn't do this, their voices prevailed. Satan will try to use your past against you. But Jesus will erase your guilt from your past if you give, him your, give your life to him. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to pick up right here where we left off of how he gave way to the pressure. But it was really because of his past. And the things that he had done in the past had now all come back to bite him. And he felt caught between a rock and a hard place. When we pick up next week, we're going to take a look at the scourging and all that and the crucifixion. But we're going to first deal with the fact of don't ever let Satan use your past against you. Because of who Jesus is and what he offers, Satan doesn't have to win because of your past. That's what we'll pick up next week. Love you guys. Thanks for coming.